This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jake, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with New York Times tech reporter and author, Kashmir Hill, about her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secret of Startups, Quest, and Privacy as We Know It. Kashmir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Jake. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. So I am a technology reporter at the New York Times, and I have been writing about privacy uh, basically since almost when I first became a journalist over a decade ago. And uh, what led you to write this book? So this book started for me a few years back when I got a crazy tip uh, emailed to me, a public records researcher had found um, he had been asking all these police departments about facial recognition technology they were using. And he found mention of this company called Clearview AI that said it had scraped billions of photos from the web and social media sites without uh, anyone's consent uh, to build a facial recognition app that worked with something like 99% accuracy. I was shocked. Uh, As far as I knew, no one had done something like that before. I didn't even know that it was possible. And so I began looking into it. And the company, even though they were exposing all this information about many, many people finding all their photos online when you search their face, they did not want to be known and they wanted to stay in the shadows. And they made my job initially very hard in kind of unearthing what was going on. And before we get into Clearview Eye itself, one of the things I really appreciated about your book was the, the context you provided the reader. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of facial recognition before computers. I got really obsessed with this idea of facial recognition technology and this ability to learn so much about us just based on a photo. And for the book, I wanted to really go back in time um, and and understand where some of these thoughts about what you could learn about the face 
came from. Uh, and this was in part because of some crazy things that Clearview AI originally wanted to do with the face beyond just figure out the name attached to it. And so the book actually goes back to Aristotle um, because in some of his writings, he, he well, one, he thought only human beings had a face, that we are the only ones kind of um, that had a true face among the animal kingdom. And he thought it conveyed a lot about us. Uh, really, um, this was where uh, physiognomy, this kind of discredited science was first born. And, you know, he thought if your eyebrows were straight, it meant you were a certain kind of person. And if they were, you know, crooked, you were a different kind of person that you could kind of tell a person's worth uh, and, and, and value and characteristics just by looking at the features of their face. So uh, this continued over a long period of time, right? I think you touched briefly on like phreneology and the idea of someone being a criminal based on their face. Was this at all related to Clearview AI's claims of the things they could do? Yeah, so this kind of branch of thought continued for a long time. It really um, was very popular during the Victorian age. Um, uh, Francis Galton, who was a cousin actually of Charles Darwin, um, believed in this. And uh, what was strange to see was the way that this strain of thought continues into the modern era. And um, uh, some of the people that were involved with Clearview Way, it was kind of a ragtag crew. And um, in their early days, they thought that maybe they could do this with AI, that, you know, the power of computers uh, with their, you know, in- incredible ability to kind of data mine and, and look for patterns, that they could build some kind of app that you would take a photo of someone and be able to tell if they were a criminal or how intelligent they were or whether they were likely to cheat on you. Um, it was, it was pretty wild seeing some of the, the early research that they were looking at and, and, and some of the, the things that they were trying to do. They talked about um, when there was that big Ashley Madison um, hack. I don't know if you remember this. Ashley Madison is, the, uh, is, is kind of a social network for people who want to have affairs. And hackers breached it and exposed all the users of the site. And so I read these early emails that uh, the the team that built what became Clearview AI Exchange, and they said, "Yeah, let's look up the faces of these uh, these Ashley Madison users on Facebook, and then we'll be able to, you know, have a computer train on them and be able to figure out what a cheater face looks like." How long has the field of computer science been working towards facial recognition? It goes back to kind of the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, the CIA at that point um, was kind of clandestinely funding research into a facial recognition machine. Uh, there were engineers uh, working on it in Silicon Valley before before that part of California was even known as Silicon Valley. And yeah, that was the first time they attempted to have a computer uh, kind of identify just, you know, one face out of eight different faces. And it did not work very well at that time. Uh, they had some limited success, though they did have to uh, have have teens assist uh, one of the main researchers' uh, sons and his friend, one of uh, his son, his son and his 
son's friend had to do the measurements for the computer and then, you know, upload those data points. Um, but yeah, and for, for many years, you know, there were small improvements, but for a long time, facial recognition technology just did not work that well. And engineers and scientists who, who worked on it, uh, uh, you know, in, in decades past told me, we thought we'd never be able to do this. We just didn't think a computer would be capable of this kind of human intelligence, this ability to recognize a human face, even when it's smiling or it's frowning, or you know, you've turned your face a different uh, angle, or you're wearing a hat or glasses, or you have facial hair. They thought it was an impossible task for for really decades. What changed? One big thing that changed was just the power of computers and the number of faces that were available for the computers to kind of digest and analyze thanks to the internet. Um, You know, we, in the early days of facial recognition, they would have to recruit, you know, 10 people or 20 people or, or hundreds of people to come to a studio and allow a photographer to take photos from lots of different angles that they could use to try to train the computers. But then the internet came along and we all started uploading our photos in mass, you know, uh, we started tagging ourselves in them on Facebook and on Google and having that number of faces to feed into the engine uh, alongside computers just growing so much more powerful and uh, techniques that came about um, neural net technology. Uh, The computers got so much better at figuring out, you know, what they needed to look for in an image, um, look for on the face to be able to say with more confidence. I think that, you know, these two faces belong to the same person or these 10 faces um, or these hundreds of faces. Clearview AI now has a database of 30 billion faces. And, you know, that's uh, many more people than actually live on the planet. So they have uh, many different versions of lots of people's faces. Why didn't traditional big tech companies like Google or Facebook or Microsoft build this technology first? So when I first learned about Clearview AI and talked to experts, everyone seemed to think that it was a technological breakthrough, that, you know, they had developed some cutting edge, um, some cutting edge facial recognition algorithm, that they must have some magic superpower to be able to gather all these faces. You know, everyone kind of knew facial recognition technology just hadn't worked very well for so long. It was known to be, have problems with bias, not work as well on some groups of people as other groups of people. Uh, kind of like was known to work best on white men. So, so how is this? How did this company come along and, and be able to do this so well and on so many different photos? But what I learned working on the book is that what Clearview had done was not a technological breakthrough. It was an ethical one. They were willing to do something that other companies had not been willing to do. And I found that both Facebook and Google had developed this technology internally years earlier. Um, There's this great scene in the book of, uh, I got to watch this video from 2017 of uh, a whole bunch of engineers at Facebook in this tiny room. And one of them is wearing a baseball cap and he has a phone kind of standing on the brim held in place by rubber bands. And everyone's laughing because it just looks absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) 
but then they, he says, you know, be quiet, uh, and, and you'll see what it can do. And, you know, looks around and when the phone trains on someone's face, it says the name aloud. Um, so, so Facebook had that technology, uh, Google's Eric Schmidt said a decade ago, uh, he was the chairman of Google at the time. He said that facial recognition technology of this kind that can identify a stranger, the ability to Google a face was the one technology that Google had developed and decided to hold back because it was just too too risky, too dangerous. So with all of this context out of the way, how we came to this moment of facial recognition, why other players didn't breach this space first, I was wondering if you could tell us the story of Clearview AI. So Clearview AI is, it is kind of a ragtag crew of individuals, kind of a small company and not your traditional tech entrepreneur, um, not your traditional tech entrepreneurs. The, the kind of technical mastermind is a guy named Juan Tontat. He grew up in Australia, just always obsessed with computers, loved technology, um, you know, uh, basically taught himself to code with with free videos that MIT put online when he was a kid. And at 19 years old, he dropped out of college and moved across the world to to San Francisco because he wanted to make it in Silicon Valley. And so he spent a lot of time. Uh, this was in 2007. Uh, Facebook had just opened its platform to outside developers. So he was kind of making silly Facebook quizzes that were getting used by millions of people. The iPhone came out. He started making iPhone games, but he was he was making just kind of silly silly apps that didn't have a lot of traction. Um, eventually, he made an app called Trump Hair, and it, that's what it did. You would you would upload a photo, and it, it would put Trump's hair on the the people in the photo. These were not kind of groundbreaking or revolutionary apps. Um, then he moved to New York, and he fell in with a um, a pretty conservative crowd, and met uh, a guy named Charles Johnson or Chuck Johnson, really uh, kind of conservative provocateur known for breaking news online that leaned very far right and and kind of mixing it up with people on Twitter. And a man named Richard Schwartz, who was decades older than Tontat and Johnson, had worked in Rudy Giuliani's administration when he was mayor of New York. And they started hatching a plan for developing some kind of app that could give you information about a stranger. And is that Clearview AI? It wasn't originally called Clearview AI. It was originally called Smart Checker. And um, one of the first people that they pitched it to after they had scraped a bunch of faces from uh, Venmo, uh, they talked about scraping faces from Tinder, you know, from, uh, from Facebook. One of the first investors they pitched was Peter Thiel, who Tontat and Chuck Johnson had met with at the Republican National Convention when Trump um, was being kind of crowned the Republican candidate. And they said, hey, we've got this app that you take a photo of somebody and it'll find photos of them. Um, I'm sorry, you'll take a photo of somebody and be able to find their social media profiles. And Teal decided to invest two hundred thousand dollars. It was their he was their first investor, uh, a big name, um, very well known, and and yeah, that's how they 
developed what eventually became Clearview AI. If Peter Thiel hadn't invested them, invested in them in those early days, the the app may well not exist. You mentioned that they scrape photos from Venmo, which, um, for those who don't know, is a uh, sort of a social media payment platform where all the payments are public by default. So whenever you pay someone, your face and the transaction history is on the open web for people to see if they know where to look. And obviously everyone knows Facebook and Tinder and whatever else, but that isn't 30 billion faces. How did they collect so many faces? Well, uh, they just kept scraping. Um, they, one, were doing it really quietly. And I did see some emails where they said, we got to be careful. Like, don't let the tech companies know what we're doing. We want to get all the faces, you know, before they know about us. Uh, and Huantan Tat um, was, it seems like he was a talented kind of scraper himself, good at sending bots out onto the internet to just download information. Um uh, particularly photos of people's faces, but he also recruited kind of technologists from really around the world. Uh, and he told me that sometimes, eventually, the, the company was uh, originally really resistant to talking to me, but eventually they came around. And so I've talked to Wonton Tat a lot since then. Um, and he said, you know, he recruited these people. Sometimes you wouldn't even know their names. Uh, they would be people who wanted to be paid in Bitcoin or Ether, these cryptocurrencies that couldn't be traced. And they would just say like, oh, hey, I, you know, I, I have a bunch of faces from couchsurfing.com uh, and, and Angels List. And uh, basically, I have a collection of faces. Do you want to buy them? And he would just, he would just buy it. Uh, it was like, a, I think in the book, I call them the lost boys. Um, it did seem like they were mostly men. But yeah, they would just go out hunting faces for him. And they didn't know exactly why he wanted them. He didn't tell them what he was building. But they would, he would, they would, they would uh, just help with the gathering, with the hunting. Storing all these faces probably cost a lot of money as you start getting into the hundreds of millions and billions of images. How did Clearview AI start to recruit more investors beyond the initial $200,000 investment? So once they had this app kind of working where you could take a photo of someone um, and get information about them, they started thinking about what they were going to do with it. And originally they were imagining selling it commercially, that it might be useful at a hotel, uh, you know, uh, where you check in. You can just you can just greet a guest by name as soon as they walk up or um, grocery stores to to identify shoplifters, um, commercial buildings, uh, real estate buildings. Uh, and so that's kind of what they were selling. And they, they went out to investors. They went to Silicon Valley. Um, they tried to get the big VC firms like Sequoia Capital to give them money. And um, they would kind of tell the investors about the app and say, you know, you can try it out for yourself. We will give you Clearview AI and you can use it. And a lot of these investors really, really liked the app. Um, and they were using it at work conferences, you know, to identify people whose names they should know. They were using it out at parties as a you know party trick, using it on, on dates. Um, at one point, I talked to John Katsimatidis, 
a billionaire here in uh, New York City who has a lot of real estate holdings and uh, uh, a grocery store called Gristidius. And he didn't end up investing, but he was telling me he really loved the app. And that one time he was eating at an Italian restaurant and his daughter walked in with kind of a suitor on her arm and he didn't know who the guy was. And so he had the waiter go over and take a photo of, of the couple. And then he ran the guy's face through Clearview AI and figured out who he was. And um, yeah, he said it was, it was incredible. And he, he would really like to have the app. He wanted it in the form of glasses so he could always know who everyone was all the time. Um, but yeah, they eventually started uh, mostly, they kind of failed in Silicon Valley to get investors. And I heard that some people had ethical concerns. Some people were worried that the database that they had created wasn't legal. Um, that's scraping all those photos from all those sites uh, wouldn't work. Um, some more liberal leaning investors didn't like the company's conservative ties. Um, but they did manage to, to raise money uh, in New York and, and elsewhere. And so you've mentioned investors and people with a lot of either money or power. Did anyone else get to try out this app during this stage? Um, so the main users, uh, besides yeah, uh, the wealthy and powerful, were, were the police. Um, at one point when they were trying to pitch the app to uh, a real estate company to kind of have in the lobby of the building, of their buildings, they met the, the building's head of security. And he had formerly worked with NYPD. And he said, man, my colleagues at the NYPD would love this app. You've got to give it to them. And so he introduced them to the financial crimes uh, unit at the NYPD. And the NYPD was the first police department to start secretly using Clearview AI. Uh, and they really liked it. And there is this pretty strong kind of whisper network <laughs> through law enforcement agencies. And so the NYPD started telling all these other law enforcement um, agencies around the country, around the world, oh my gosh, we're using this, this amazing app. I talked to one person who worked for the Department of Homeland Security, and he was telling me about how he found out about it because he was looking for a, um, a child sexual abuser um, who had included his own photo in a photo with a child. Um, and he was able to run the guy's face through Clearview AI, found him standing in the background of someone else's Instagram photo. And the clues in the photo allowed him to track the guy down and arrest him and, you know, rescue the child from, from uh, kind of being uh, accessible to him. Uh, and so, yeah, so the police, hundreds of police departments, thousands of police departments ended up signing up for free trials to use Clearview AI. Meanwhile, no one, no one knows that this app exists or has had a conversation about whether we're kind of comfortable with, with that use of our faces and, and that findability. Uh, and just to clarify for the listeners, when a police department would run a picture through, what would Clearview AI return to them? So when you run, and I've, I've the, the Wonton Tat, the CEO, has now run my face a few different times, so I've seen this happen. Um, you'll upload the face, and then you'll get a, a whole bunch of photos in return that the software 
thinks are you. And you'll you'll just see like a little crop version of the face. You can click on it. It'll show you the whole image and it'll give you the URL. Uh, it'll give you the website that it came from. And so you can click through and that can allow you to find out someone's name, find them on social networks, uh, maybe find out where they live. It's, it's a very powerful way to find information about somebody. It's also a way to find photos that, that maybe don't have identifying information, to find photos that that person may not know exist, uh, may not have you know put on the internet, not associated with their name. It's kind of this powerful way to just find any, any place on the internet where someone's face has appeared. Thanks. So you mentioned that this has been happening in secret. Um, police departments are using this uh, software. Why uh, did police departments not disclose the fact that they were using Clearview AI? I mean, some of the police departments, some officers I talked to, they just knew that this tool would be very radical and might scare people. So they weren't necessarily looking to tell the world about it. Um, and this is, you know, somewhat common when we're talking about new surveillance technologies. Police don't really always love to talk about the tools that they use, um, you know, whether it's automated license plate scanners, um, you know, uh, devices that have a, an ability to kind of figure out where you are based on where your cell phone is that can kind of uh, basically intercept your cell phone signal, a device called Stingrays. Sometimes the police hide the tools that they have, and they say the reason is because they don't want the bad guys to, to basically know how they can be found. Thanks. So now that police departments use these tools, um, and you mentioned it was a free trial, but in the book you discussed that several police departments actually buy a subscription to um, Clear VI. Is that correct? Yes. And so the NYPD used Clearview for many months, ran thousands of searches, but ultimately decided not to buy the app. And what I was told is that they just felt like it was too controversial. Um, but they told many other police departments about it who did decide to to sign up and start paying. Um, and one of the first was the Indiana State Police. And um and so, yeah, it became it became quite popular. And part of the reasons why part of the reason why was that you could do these free trials. Uh, so it was so easy to sign up for police officers. And then Clearview was pretty cheap. It was only charging in some cases a few thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars for a yearly subscription, and that was so much cheaper than other other kind of facial recognition technology providers were charging for uh, technologies that didn't tend to work as well and didn't have this database that Clearview had of just, you know, billions of photos from the web. So with police departments uh, actively using this technology, are there any actual problems with uh, facial recognition's implementation in our law enforcement system? Yeah, so so law enforcement officers have been using facial recognition for two decades now, since the, the early 2000s. And uh, historically, that facial recognition worked on, you know, criminal mugshots. And then after a while, they started also incorporating in, in some states driver's license photos um, or state IDs. And 
the facial recognition algorithm, facial recognition algorithms were pretty flawed, uh, even though they were kind of actively using them in investigations um, and looking for like identity fraud when people are applying for 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 new government documents. At that time, the technology had a real bias problem, and it just did not work as well on some groups as others. One facial recognition vendor whose uh, software um, was rolled out in airports after September 11th to check the faces of travelers told me that they had to pull out of a, a project in South Africa because they found that the facial recognition technology just was failing utterly on people with with dark skin, and so that is 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 troubling uh, to me. You know that the the technology was used so long when it did have these these problems that were not well recognized. You know, uh, there's been a lot of improvement in facial recognition technology since then, but we are still seeing problems in, in its deployment. Um, I've written about a number of false arrests where people have been arrested essentially for the crime of looking like someone else. Um, the most recent uh, incident happened in Detroit. It's the third time that it's happened in Detroit. And it was a woman named Portia Woodruff. She was eight months pregnant, uh, take, getting her two young, other young children ready for school. And police showed up at her door on a Thursday morning to arrest her for carjacking and robbery. And it turned out that a couple of weeks earlier, a woman who looked like her um, had been involved in this crime. That woman had not been uh, had not been visibly pregnant, and so it was clearly uh, it was clearly a mistake. And the you know police had not done enough investigating off of the facial recognition lead, and as a result, Portia Woodruff you know, spent a day in jail. Uh, she was charged. She had to hire a lawyer to fight the charges. And, um, yeah, she went to the hospital when she was released from jail because, um, after her arrest, because she had been so stressed out and dehydrated. So it really has a toll when, when it's used incorrectly. Um, and she, uh, she is black and all of the people that we know of who have been falsely arrested, um, so far have all been, um, have, have all been black. Part of the title of your book mentions the end of privacy as we know it. I was wondering if you could talk about what happens next. Now that this software is out there as a commercial product, what does this mean for everyday individuals who want to keep some sort of anonymity in their life? Well, I think if we don't do something about it and this technology is widely deployed, it will change just our our ability to be anonymous in public. Um, just, just every day, you know, if you're on the subway train and you bump into somebody, you know, or you're rude to somebody or they're rude to you, you know, you could take their photo and figure out who they are and maybe, you know, blast them on, on Twitter uh, or on X as it's called now or right now nasty things about them online. It would mean that, you know, when you're, when you're having a sensitive conversation at dinner or, you know, on a train, kind of assuming that you have the security of somebody not really understanding the context of the conversation because they don't know who you are. If they overhear it and, and they're curious, they could take your photo and now they know who you are. They understand the context of the conversation. Um, I think that that 
that just kind of little brother use of the technology could be chilling. And then we're, you know, we're already seeing companies use this technology in a, in a, a really troubling way. Um, and that company is Madison Square Garden, which is a big event space in New York City. Um, you know, sporting events, the Knicks play there, the Rangers play there, lots of big concerts. Uh, the person who owns it, James Dolan, decided uh, to to um, install facial recognition technology in the last few years, supposedly uh, to um, improve the security there and keep out any threats. But recently he decided one of the threats are any lawyers that work at firms that have sued his company. Uh, that's about 90 firms, uh, thousands of lawyers. And so Madison Square Garden scraped photos from the law firm websites and put thousands of lawyers on a ban list. And so when they try to go to the venue, they get turned away when they walk through the metal detector and they're told, you're not welcome here. I went with a lawyer once, a personal injury lawyer that this happened to. And she said, you know, I'm not working on the case against you. And they said, it doesn't matter. You know, the lawyers from your firm aren't welcome here until, um, uh, until the the lawsuit is dropped, and so that's pretty that's pretty wild, uh, and it really could usher in this new era of discrimination where maybe companies won't let you in because you wrote a Yelp review about them once that was negative or because they don't like your political leanings. You know, it just it it, it allows people, companies, the police to gather all of this information about us, the whole online dossier that we have kind of accumulated over the last few decades on the internet, and just attach that to your face in the real world. And I, I do think there's many ways in which that could be that could be really chilling. Is there anything that someone can do to stay private today? I think this is hard to solve on an individual level. It really is something that policymakers need to address. You know, there's no federal law that really um, addresses facial recognition technology or the use of our information this way. But there are a few things that people can do. So one, there are some state laws uh, that better protect people's faces. Like depending on where you live, you have more rights. And so if you live in a state or country with a right to access and delete your information, if you're in California, for example, you can request that a company like Clearview AI actually delete your face from their database. Um, so if this troubles you, I, you know, encourage you to do that. Um, you also might want to start thinking more about what photos you put on the internet and just being aware that they're findable. Um, this may be a little counterintuitive, but there, fake Clearview AI is limited to police use, but there are copycats now. Um, there are public face search engines. One is called PimEyes, and you can go there, and if you want, you can upload your face and find out what photos of you are on the internet. Um, are on the internet that you might not know about. And uh, you might want to address them. If there's anything you don't like, basically, in your kind of internet footprint, you might want to try to get those images taken down, knowing that others can now find them. What is your position on facial recognition after writing this book and doing all this research and thinking a lot about privacy? You know, I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist, and I'm just trying to chronicle what is happening. So I don't know if I have a 
position per se. I guess I, you know, I see how facial recognition technology can be used for good. I've talked to a lot of police officers who have solved crimes this way. And, um, you know, when it's used appropriately, it can be used for justice. Um, At the same time, I do think that it could be deployed in really chilling ways. And I document that in the book, you know, Russia has used it to identify protesters against the war in Ukraine. China has used it for control of its citizens um, in all kinds of ways from identifying, you know, Uyghur Muslims, uh, you know, who have been put in detention camps in China to policing people wearing pajamas in public or taking too much toilet paper in public restrooms. So, there's really a spectrum of uses. I guess my position would be that I hope that we can harness the good that could be accomplished with the technology and um, and discourage kind of the worst uses. Well, Cash, it was really great having you on the show today, but that's about all the time we have. If people want to find more about you or your book, where can they go? Uh, so I am Cash Hill on, on most social media platforms. And um, you can go to my website, cashmerehill.com. I'm about to go on tour. So if you uh, would like to see me in one of those cities, just go to the events page on my website and would be happy to sign a book for you. Great. Well, thanks so much for stopping by today. Thank you so much, Jake. <laughs>